Welcome back, Donuts. Welcome to another episode of Fried Dough, your weekly fix of true crime. I'm your girl, Gina. I always want to remind listeners that the stories that I cover on this podcast may be difficult to hear. However, it is very important to shine a light on these cases and remember the victims who was affected. Okay, you know what I realized? I never ask you all, how have your week gone? How was your week? Because I'm hoping that it was just a fabulous week when everything went right, everything you wished for happened. Yeah. Right now, it is in the middle of the night and for some strange reason, I'm not sleepy. I have my glass of vino right next to me and I'm just feeling real good right now. But honestly, every time I have a glass of wine, I'm always feeling good about myself so so let me tell you real quick how my week went one my job drug tested the whole shift in my department which is kind of funny it's going to be a lot of collateral damage I'm going to miss a lot of people because I'm confident that I'm good either way I'm going to miss a lot of people because This is where we part ways. Yeah, because some people out there do it a little bit more than your girl. And two, I had an interview today for a different department at my job, which I feel quite positive about. And honestly, not to try to toot my own horn, but every interview that I go on, I always get the job. So (laughs) I don't know. I'll be very surprised if I didn't, but hey you win some you lose some I ain't gonna be mad and that's how my week went it it's kind of (laughs) back and forth on emotions with me so okay so what I'm thinking is after the last two episodes we all need a break because truthfully I know I do so what we're gonna do today is talk about a disappearance So here's how I found this case. I was literally just clicking and I came across it. I was on a break at lunch and I just started reading. And when I read it, I got really intrigued. I never heard of the story. I never heard of her name. And I just felt that we all need to know her story. So I didn't talk your ear off enough. Let's get started on this story. In the quiet winter of 2004, a seemingly ordinary evening took a bewildered turn on a rural road. A young woman named Mara Murray was driving through a snow-covered landscape when her car suddenly careened off the road, setting off a chain of events that would leave investigators and the public baffled for years to come. What initially appeared to be a sudden car accident quickly morphed into a haunting enigma marked by perplexing discussions, unanswered questions, and a trail that seemed to vanish into the heart of the mystery surrounding Mara Murray's disappearance, where every twist and turn reveals a chilling tale that defies explanation. So settle in and prepare to be drawn into a mystery that has puzzled and haunted us for years. What we're going to do is look at Mara's movements that weekend and try to figure out what could have happened to Mara Murray. This is Fright Doe, true crime podcast, and this is the baffling disappearance of Mara Murray.
Mara Murray was born May 4, 1982 in Hanson, Massachusetts. She was the fourth child of Frederick and Laura Murray. She has an older brother named Fred, two older sisters named Kathleen and Julie, a younger half-brother named Kirk. Mara was raised in an Irish Catholic household. When she was six years old, her parents divorced, after which Mara lived primarily with her mother. Mara graduated from Whitman Hanson Regional High School, where she was a star athlete on the school's track team. She was accepted into the United States Military Academy in West Point, New York, where she studied chemical engineering for three semesters. After her freshman year, she transferred to University of Massachusetts Amherst to study nursing. In November of 2003, three months before her disappearance, Mara admitted to using stolen credit cards to order food from several restaurants, including one in Hadley, Massachusetts. The charges was postponed in December to be eventually dismissed after three months of good behavior. On the evening of February 5, 2004, while she was on duty at her campus security job, Mara spoke on the phone with her older sister, Kathleen. They discussed Kathleen's relationship problems with her fiance. After 10.30 p.m., while still on her shift, Mara reportedly broke down in tears. When her supervisor arrived at her desk, Mara was just completely zoned out. No reaction at all. She was unresponsive. The supervisor escorted Mara back to her dorm room around 1.20 a.m. When asked what was wrong, Mara said two words, my sister. On Saturday, February 7th, Mara's father, Fred, arrived in Amherst. He told investigators that he and Mara went car shopping that afternoon and later they went to dinner with a friend of Mara. Mara dropped her father off at the hotel room and borrowed his car, which was a Toyota Corolla. She returned to campus to attend a dorm party. She arrived at 10.30 p.m. At 2.30 a.m. on Sunday morning, February 8th, she left the party. At 3.30 a.m., en route to her father's motel, she struck a guardrail on Route 9 in Hadley, causing nearly $10,000 worth of damage to her father's car. The responding officer wrote an accident report, but there was no documentation for a field sobriety test being conducted. Mara was driven to her father's motel to stay in his room for the rest of the morning. The Sunday morning, uh... Mara woke me up. She uh, she had come back, you know, during the night and uh, told me that she had had an accident in my car. Well, Mara was upset, and uh, it haunts me. But uh, you know, she I think she felt she uh, let her father down. At 4:49 a.m., there was a call placed to her boyfriend from Fred's phone. The participants and the contents of that phone call are unknown. On Sunday morning, Fred, he learned that the damages to his vehicle would be covered by his auto insurance. He rented a car, dropped Mara off at the university, and departed to Connecticut. I drove her back to the dorm. I could see she was still upset. I told her it would be all right. It was going to be covered. It would, it would be okay, you know? And she went into the dorm, and that's the last I ever saw her, which haunt me forever.
At 11.30 that night, Fred called his daughter to remind her to obtain the accident form from the Registry of Motor Vehicles. They agreed to talk again Monday night to discuss the form and fill out the insurance claim via phone. After my insurance, I called her back, said, uh, you know, we're okay. Uh, the insurance is, will be taken care of, so I'm not going to be out a lot of money. Um, I said, you're going to have to uh, make out accident reports, probably in triplicate. So get the three forms from the police station or wherever you have to get them and uh, call me tomorrow night, you know, Eight, 8 o'clock. After midnight on Monday, February 9, 2004, Mara used her personal computer to search MapQuest for directions to Berkshire and Burlington, Vermont. The first reported contact Mara had with anyone on February 9th was at 1 p.m. when she emailed her boyfriend, I love you more, stud. I got your message, but personally, I didn't feel like talking too much to anyone. I promised to call today, though. Love you, Mara. She also made a phone call inquiring about renting a condominium at the same Bartlett, New Hampshire condo association, which her family had vacationed in the past. Telephone records indicated that the call lasted three minutes. The owner did not rent a condo to Mara. At 1.13 p.m., Mara called a fellow nursing student for reasons unknown. On the afternoon of Monday, February 9th, at 1.24 p.m., Mara emailed a work supervisor of the nursing facility that she would be out of town for a week due to a death in her family. According to her family, they had not experienced the death. She also said that she would contact them when she returned. At 2.05 p.m., Mara called a number which provide record information about booking hotels in Stowe, Vermont. The call lasted approximately five minutes. At 2.18 p.m., she phoned her boyfriend and left a voicemail promising him that they would talk later. This call ended after one minute. In her car, Mara packed clothing, toiletries, college books, and birth control pills. Mm. When her room was searched later, campus police discovered most of her belongings packed in a box and her art removed from the walls. It was not clear whether Mara packed them that day, but the police at the time said that she had packed between Sunday night and Monday morning. On top of the boxes was a printed email to Mara's boyfriend indicating trouble in their relationship. Around 3.30 p.m., she drove off the campus in a black 1996 Saturn sedan, and classes had been canceled that day due to snowstorm. At 3.40 p.m., Mara, she withdrew $280 from the ATM. Closed circuit footage shows she was alone. At a nearby liquor store, Mara purchased about $40 worth of alcohol beverages, including Bailey's Irish Cream, Kahlua, Vodka, and a box of wine. Security footage again shows she was alone when she made the purchase. At some point in the day, she also picked up accident report forms from the Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles. I guess that's just like the DMV where I live at, the driver, motor vehicle, whatever, but the DMV where you go and get your licenses and things like that, I guess. Mara then left Amherst between 4 and 5 p.m., presumably via Interstate 91 North. She called to check her voicemail at 4.37 p.m. That was the last recorded use of her cell phone. To date, 
there has been no indication that she had formed anybody of her destination or any evidence that she has even chosen one. Sometime after 7 p.m., a Woodsville, New Hampshire resident heard a loud thump outside her house. Through her window, she could see a car up against the snowbank along Route 112, also known as Wild Amanusik Road. The car pointed west on the eastbound side of the road at 7.27 p.m. Another local woman reported the car accident on the sharp corner of Route 112 adjacent to her home. She called the Gafton County Sheriff's Department at 7.27 p.m. to report the accident. According to the 911 logs, the woman claimed to have seen a man smoking cigarettes inside the car. However, she later stated that she had not seen a man nor a person smoking cigarettes, but rather had seen what appeared to be a red light glowing from inside the car, potentially from a cell phone. A passing motorist who was a school bus driver and lived nearby stopped at the scene. They saw the car as well as a young woman walking around the vehicle. The school bus driver noticed that the young woman was not bleeding or visible injuries, but cold and shivering. He offered to call for help. She asked him to call the police, but one police report said that she pleaded with him to call the police and assured him that she already called AAA. AAA has no record of any such call. Knowing there was no cellular reception in the area, the bus driver continued home and called the police. His call was received at the Sheriff's Department at 7.43 p.m. He was unable to see Mara's car while he made the call, but did notice several cars passing on the road before the police arrived. Another local resident driving home claimed that she passed by the scene around 7.37 p.m. and saw the police SUV parked face-to-face -face with Mara's car. She pulled up briefly and did not see anyone inside or outside the car and decided to continue home. The witness's statement contradicts the official police log, which has Haverhill police officer arriving nine minutes later. According to the official police log, at 7.46 p.m., a Haverhill police officer arrived on the scene, but the woman had disappeared. No one was inside or around the car. The car had impacted the tree on the driver's side of the vehicle, severely damaging the left headlight and pushing the car's radiator into the fan, rendering it inoperable. The car's windshield was cracked on the driver's side and both airbags had deployed. The car was locked. Inside and outside of the car, the police officer discovered red stains that looked like red wine. Inside of the car, the officer found an empty beer bottle a damaged box of wine in the back seats. In addition, he found a AAA card issued to Mari Morrow, blank accident report forms, gloves, CDs, makeup, diamond jewelry, driving directions to Burlington, Vermont, Mara's favorite stuffed animal, and not without Perel, a book about mountain climbing in the White Mountains. Also found in Mara's car was a book titled Not Without Peril. It was a book chronicling different hikers that had gone into the presidential range of New Hampshire's mountains and they either never returned or they were badly injured. The book Not Without Peril was in Mara's car because uh, Mara and I 
climbed uh, in Mount Washington, and when you read the book, it mentions all these different trails and all, all the different adventures, some ending happily, some, some ending in, in death. You know, people have frozen to death up there. But for the most part, it's uplifting. Missing were Mara's debit card, credit cards, and cell phone, none which has been located or used since her disappearance. The police later reported that some of the liquor that she bought was also missing. Journalist Joe McGee, writing for the Quincy, Massachusetts Patriot Ledger, summarized the accident by saying, At a hairpin turn, she went off the road. Her car hit a tree. A person came along who was driving a bus. It was a neighbor. He asked her if she needed any help. She refused. About 10 minutes later, police showed up to a scene and Mari Morrow's was gone. Police traced the vehicle back to Mari Morrow and initially treated her as a missing person on the belief that she may have wanted to disappear voluntarily. This speculation was based on her travel preparation about which she may have confided nothing to her friends or family and no obvious evidence of foul play. In 2009, Mari's case was given to a New Hampshire cold case division and authorities have handled it as a suspicious missing persons case. Between 8 and 8.30 p.m., a contractor returning home from Franconia, New Hampshire, said he saw a person moving very quickly on foot eastbound on Route 112, about four to five miles, six to eight kilometers east of where Mara's vehicle was discovered. He noted that the young person was wearing jeans, a black coat, and a light-colored hood. He did not report it to police immediately due to his own confusion of dates. Only discovering three months later when he reviewed his work records that he had spotted the young person the same night Mari Mara disappeared. The responding officer and the bus driver drove around the area searching for Mara. Just before 8 p.m., EMS and the fire truck arrived to clear the scene. By 8.49 p.m., the car had been towed to a local garage. At 9.30, the responding officer left. A rag believed to have been part of Mara's emergency roadside kit was discovered stuffed into the Saturn's muffle pipe. Authorities will refer to Mara as a simple missing case at 12 p.m. the next day, almost 24 hours after the last confirmed sighting of her. In October 2006, volunteers led a two-day search within a few miles of where Mara's car was found approximately one mile or 1.6 kilometers from the crash site. Cadaver dogs allegedly went bonkers, possibly identifying the presence of human remains. The place was a house that was formerly been a residence of a man that was implicated by his brother in 2004. A sample of the carpet had been sent to the New Hampshire State Police, but the results were never released to the public. In July 2008, volunteers led another two-day search through wooded areas in Havenhill. The group consisted of dog teams and licensed private investigators. Mara's case was one of many cited by the proponent of the statewide cold case unit in New Hampshire in 2009. Her case was subsequently added to the newly established cold case unit later that year. 
Jeffrey Strelzen said in 2009 that the investigation was still alive. We don't know if Mari is a victim, but the state is treating it as if it's a potential homicide. It may be a missing person case, but it's being handled as a criminal investigation. In 2010, Fred Murray publicly criticized the police investigators for treating the disappearance as a missing person case and not a criminal matter, and called on the FBI to join the investigation. So in 2014, on the 10th anniversary of Mari's disappearance, Jeffrey Strelzen stated that, we haven't had any credible sights of Mari since the night she disappeared. In an article published in the New York Daily News, it was reported that Fred Murray believed that she was dead and had been abducted the night that she disappeared. On February 9th, 2017, the 13th anniversary of Mara's disappearance, Saltzer, Jeffrey Saltzer, wrote in an email to the Boston Globe, it's still an open case with periods of activity and at times it goes dormant. There's no update to share at this time. In February 2019, the 15th anniversary of Mari's disappearance, Fred Murray reiterated his belief that his daughter had died the night that she disappeared, as well as his suspicion about the nearby house the cadaver dogs responded to. In early April, excavation was done within the basement of that house. Fred Murray had previously wanted to search the house, but the owner did not cooperate. Following sales of the property, its new owners allowed several searches of the property since February. The excavation conducted in early April found absolutely nothing, other than something that looked as if it was a piece of pottery or old piping. In late 2020, Mari's family contacted the New Hampshire Historical Marker so they can place a marker at the site as a memorial for the last place she was seen. And it was submitted in late 2020, but it was turned down by the New Hampshire Division of Historical Resources. In early 2021, the tree at the site where Mari was last seen, which had been marked with a blue ribbon as a memorial, was cut down by the property owner. On September 14, 2021, the New Hampshire State Police they announced that it was a bone fragment found in the Loon Mountains in Lincoln, New Hampshire, approximately 25 miles or 40 kilometers east of the site of Mari's crash. But later it was announced in November that it didn't belong to Mari. In January 2022, FBI issued a national alert in Mari's case and created a violent criminal apprehension profile allowing multiple law enforcement agencies to share information regarding her case. In July 2022, law enforcement in New Hampshire initiated a search in the town of Landolph and Easton. To add to the mystery and the frustration, reporter Mayor Beth Conway said that she spoke to a witness who says that she actually encountered Mara Murray looking very distressed. She says she saw a young woman with an older man, a man probably in his 60s. The young woman had her arms folded in front of her and seemed to be mouthing the word, help me. The woman finally realized what was happening, but before she really had a chance to do anything about it, the young woman and the older man left. The woman couldn't get a license plate number or any further description of the young girl but she swears that this was Mara Murray. 
Law enforcement had many reports about the sighting of Mara in Rochester, New Haven, Vermont, and in other states, and they could be her. From what we know about what's going on today about all of this trafficking, unfortunately. Mara Murray's disappearance had led to an extensive media coverage and speculation as well as numerous theories about what might have happened to her. Despite extensive searches and interviews, her whereabouts remain unknown and the case remains open. The mysterious circumstances around her disappearance had led to various theories, including abduction, foul play, voluntary disappearance, and more. The case has garnered significant attention in the true crime community in the years of Mara's disappearance, her case will receive media attention on CNN, Nancy Grace Cold Case, The Montel Williams Show, Dr. Oz, and dozens of local regional newspaper, magazine, radio, and television programs. It also garnered significant speculation on internet message boards and forums. In 2017, the case was the subject of a documentary series on Oxygen Network which described Mara's disappearance as the first crime mystery of the social media age, having occurred days after the launch of Facebook. And since we're talking about Facebook, there are three groups about Mara Murray's case, discussions, and theories on Facebook right now. I have all of them linked in the show notes. As we reach the end of our exploration into the perplexing disappearance of Mara Murray, one thing becomes abundantly clear. This case is far from ordinary. The layers of mystery, the gaps of information, and the unresolved questions continue to haunt those who seek the truth. Mara's story serves as a reminder that even in the modern day connectivity, there are still mysteries that elude our understanding. While the investigators had yielded countless discussions and theories, the ultimate face of Mari Mara remained unknown, leaving us with a chilly reminder of the enigmatic nature of the true crime and the enduring quest for answers. If you feel that you have any information where you can help the police and the Murray family to find out what happened to Mari Murray, the link is in the show notes. You can submit a tip to the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit. Today's Missing, we're featuring Destiny Patterson. Destiny is 14 years old, female, black hair, brown eyes. She stands 5'9". She weighs 270 pounds. Destiny she was last missing in Columbus, Ohio on June 2nd, 2023. She was wearing a black t-shirt and black biker shorts. She has a nose piercing. If anyone has any information regarding to the whereabouts of Destiny, please contact the Special Victims Unit at area code 614-525-3555 or you can contact Crime Stoppers at area code 614-645-4749 or visit www.p3tips.com. Let's help bring destiny home to her family. If you enjoyed this episode, hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. 
If you have any insight on this case or any other case that I've covered, or if you have any case suggestions, contact the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Or if you like, you can leave a 60 second message and that message might be on the next episode. All of the links are in the show notes. Also, before you go, please help support this podcast by sharing it with your friends or just simply leave a positive review on whatever platform you're listening to me on right now. Until next time, Donuts, please stay safe, stay vigilant, and please always, always, always trust your instincts. I promise you, you will never go wrong.